All right, let's open our Bibles to Leviticus. And uh, I'm going to read two sections of Scripture, and I'm going to go in uh, reverse order, actually. I'm going to begin in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. And I'm going to read verses 23 through 32. Then I'm going to go to Leviticus chapter 16, and I'm going to read some verses there. But first, let's read Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 23. Leviticus 23, 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, You shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also, the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that day, on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. And you shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. And it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, You shall celebrate your Sabbath. Now let's turn back a few pages to Leviticus chapter 16. So what we just read there was kind of a summary in Leviticus 23 of the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Atonement, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Leviticus 16 goes into quite a bit of detail. In fact, the whole chapter gives us extensive detail on the ceremony surrounding the Day of Atonement. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. There's, there's really one part I want to focus in on. So I'm going to read the first ten verses. And then actually I'm going to read to you uh, verses 20 through 22. So beginning in Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 1 through verse 10. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil. That's worth noting right there. It's worth noting because it's quite a contrast of the reality we live under now In the new covenant, God tells Moses, tell Aaron that he can't just come any time behind the veil. Before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. 
For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. And he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded in a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. Then God gives a lot of detail about, details about the various offerings that, that Aaron is to bring and what those offerings represent. I want to skip that and I want to go down to verse 20 and I want to pick up where God begins to instruct Moses again about the scapegoat. Verse 20, so after Aaron, after the high priest has finished everything, after he's finished atoning for the tabernacle, for himself, for the tabernacle, and for the people of Israel, and he's brought the various blood of the offerings and sprinkled the blood of the offerings inside the holy place and outside on the altar, when all of that's done, verse 20, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Remember, there were two goats. One was a sacrifice, and one was to be left alive. He shall bring the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to the uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. And that is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the gospel of Christ that is written on every page of your holy scripture. And we thank you for the gospel of Christ that we see here in this record of the law and this record of the feast, how you instructed Moses to instruct the children of Israel to keep the feast in honor of the Lord. And we know these feasts point us to Jesus. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Open our hearts and open our minds that we would not see law and legalism and ceremony and ritual, but we would see the living Christ on the pages of your living word. We ask that you would do this by the power of your spirit in us, that we would be transformed by your word to be a people to show forth your glory in this world, that your light would shine in the darkness and men would see 
the only hope they have in life and death, Jesus Christ. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here in Leviticus, we just read the record of two feasts, the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Atonement. Today actually is September 29, 2019. In our calendar, this actually is the day of uh, the Feast of Trumpets is celebrated, Rosh Hashanah. Um, so in the Jewish calendar... This is actually the first day of the seventh month, and it is the Jewish New Year. So if we were Jews celebrating Judaism, worshiping in that um, religion, today would be our New Year. Now we know that the feasts were given to Israel, and they're recorded for us here in Leviticus and in Numbers, uh, in the record of the law that God originally gave Israel seven feasts. And even though the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah, is the fourth feast of the seven, it is called the head of the year. That's what Rosh Hashanah means, head of the year. But it's not the first feast. It's the fourth feast. The first feast is Passover. So, In order, the feasts were given to Israel to be celebrated in this order. The first feast, or the first, the beginning of the sacred year, the sacred calendar begins with Passover. You have Passover, you have unleavened bread, you have first fruits. Those all happen within days of each other. Then you have a 50-day span And you have what's called the Feast of Weeks, or what we commonly refer to as the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost is simply a word that means 50. And then, 50 days after first fruits, you have Pentecost. And then you come to this feast that we celebrate today. So you have Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost. Feast of Trumpets, I'm sorry, it's number five. Then you have Atonement, number six, and you have Tabernacles, number seven. But even though Trumpets is number five, it is the Jewish New Year, or the head of the year. So all of these feasts speak of Jesus. All of these feasts point us to Jesus. More than likely, Jesus was born at this time of year. Some people believe he was probably born on Rosh Hashanah. We don't know that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But we can get a pretty good idea that he was probably born this time of year because the shepherds were still out in the fields keeping their flocks. In other words, it wasn't too cold for them to have their flocks out in the field. So it was probably this time of year that Jesus was born. Interestingly enough, Rosh Hashanah, or head of the year, according to the Jews, commemorates the creation of the world, the creation of Adam and Eve. Jesus is called the head of the church. Jesus has been given the name that is above all names. In other words, Jesus is the head of all things. He's not just the head of the year. He is the head. 
the head of all things. And this feast day, the Feast of Trumpets, marks not only the creation of the world and the creation of Adam and Eve and the beginning of the creation, it's the beginning of what's called the High Holy Days. So this first day of the seventh month leads us to the tenth day of the seventh month, which is the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is the most sacred, the most holy of all the feasts that the Jews kept. Because the Day of Atonement was the day that Israel's sins, the sins of the nation, were atoned for or not. So all of their hopes were pinned on this day as a nation. Would God accept the sacrifice and would the sins of the nation be atoned for? And we see this ceremony played out for us in a way that presents Christ to us in Hebrews chapter, really the whole book of Hebrews is about this feast and about how Christ is our atonement, how he is our great high priest who has gone behind the veil to make, to offer not just the blood of animals, not of bulls and goats, but the blood of his own, his own blood to atone for our sins himself with his own blood. So the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, is the most holy day of the Jewish calendar. It's the day that marks the atonement for sin for the entire nation of Israel. It's the only day that God commands a fast in Israel. This is when we read that, where God says he commands that their souls be afflicted. This is what this is. He commands them to begin a fast on the ninth day and carry it through to the tenth day to the very moment when the priest would take the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat behind the veil and sprinkle it on the mercy seat to atone for the holy place, to atone for... The, to atone. There's three things being atoned for there. The priest has to atone for his own sin first. Then he atones for the sin of the holy place because it's been contaminated by sinful men. Then he takes the blood of the... Uh, of the the sin offering of the ram that he collected from the people and he takes that blood and he atones for the sins of the people. And when the priest comes back out, it's a sign that God has accepted that blood and now for another year, the sins of the nation have been atoned for. And in between that, when you or I would commit sin or commit a trespass, we were commanded to bring our sin offering to the priest to be offered up to the Lord so that our sin would be covered. So we didn't just get our sins covered once a year by the priest going into the veil. Every time we sinned, we had to bring the blood of an animal so that our sins would be atoned for. Otherwise, they weren't atoned for. And this was an ever-present reminder that there was a cost for sin. That sin brings death. This is why there was so much blood. It was to remind Israel that your sin has a consequence. And so this Day of Atonement was kept from the time that Moses is given this law by God in the wilderness to 30 years after 40 years after Christ came, in 70 AD, approximately a generation, 
closing of that generation, after Jesus was crucified, after Jesus gave up his own life and shed his own blood for us, in 70 AD, the Romans came and they destroyed the temple and they destroyed Jerusalem. And from that time in 70 AD, there has never been another sacrifice offered in the temple. That means from that time in 70 AD, there has been no blood of a bull, no blood of a goat taken behind the veil and sprinkled on the mercy seat. In fact, a lot of Christians don't even realize this, even in Jesus' day, there was no mercy seat behind the veil. The mercy seat disappeared when the Babylonians came the first time, and it was never put back into the temple. The, the mercy seat was never put back into the temple when the Jews came back from captivity and rebuilt the second temple. So the priest would go in there in a ceremonial, uh, in, really in symbolism, he would take the blood behind the veil, but there was no mercy seat for him to sprinkle behind the veil. But they did it every year, even though they didn't have a mercy seat in the temple. Because that mercy seat was never meant to be the place where God's presence dwelt. It was symbolic. It was a shadow. It was a type. It was a road sign pointing us to the real mercy seat. The ark was a road sign pointing us to the true ark that would save us. Just like Noah's ark was a road sign pointing us to the true ark that would save us. Who is Jesus Christ? For Christians, we know that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of God's people. He is the fulfillment of all of the feasts. Christ is our Passover. Christ is our unleavened bread. He is our first fruits. He was raised up on the feast of first fruits. He is our first fruits. He is the indwelling life of the Spirit. How does Jesus live in us? He lives in us by the Spirit of God that has been poured out into our hearts by God's grace in His love. He is the head and the creator of heaven and earth and of the new creation. He is our atonement. He is the God who dwells with us. Tabernacles is that last feast, that seven-day feast called the Feast of Booths when Israel would dwell in booths celebrating God with us, God tabernacling among his people. Guess what? Jesus put on an earthly tent in his incarnation and he came and he tabernacled with us in his birth. He walked with us until his death. He ascended to the Father. And do you know what he told his disciples? Lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. We're not waiting for Jesus to come and tabernacle with us now. Jesus has been tabernacling with us by his Spirit since his incarnation, since his death, and since the outpouring of his Spirit on that Feast of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. Jesus has fulfilled all of the feasts. He is the fulfillment of all of those feasts. And in this ceremony, in this day of atonement, we see something very interesting here. This ceremony where the sins of the people were atoned for. 
And God asked a peculiar thing. He asked that two goats be brought. Now, this isn't two separate offerings. These goats, these two goats represent one offering. And in this one offering of two goats, one of these goats is going to be killed and his blood is going to be applied to the mercy seat. But that other goat is going to be prayed over and the sins, all the sins, the Bible says, God says all the sins and all the iniquities of the people will be passed to this goat. And Aaron, or the high priest, would lay both of his hands on the head of this goat and impart all the sins of the people upon that goat. And then that goat would be led away and removed into the wilderness. It was in this feast of atonement that the sins of God's people were atoned for. And they had their sins ceremonially removed and taken away from them as a reminder of God's grace and God's forgiveness. Now, this was an annual ceremony. There's weakness here. Remember, this is not the ultimate fulfillment. This is pointing us to the ultimate fulfillment. And that's why every year they had to repeat this. And that's why every priest had to first atone for his own sins. This is why you and I would have to continuously atone for our sins through the blood of animals. But now Jesus has come. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we no longer have to offer the blood of bulls and goats. In fact, Jesus, unlike the earthly priest, does not have to constantly atone for his own sins because Jesus has no sin. He is the sinless Lamb of God who walked in perfection before the Father who has atoned once and for all for our sins, for the sins of God's people. In other words, Jesus is our, not just our lamb. He's not just the Passover lamb. He's not just the lamb of God that causes death to pass over. Remember what did John the Baptist say? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is pointing us not just to Jesus as the Passover, this is also pointing us to Jesus as the scapegoat who takes away our sin. This word scapegoat, if you have a King James Bible, your Bible says scapegoat. If you have another translation, it may say Azazel. This is the only place in the Bible this word appears. It doesn't appear anywhere else. It's unique and it's unusual in that sense. And it's a word of uncertain origin. Some people believe Azazel is the name of a demon. Some people believe it's the name of a place. The reality is we don't really know. But here's what we do know. The root meaning of this word means to entirely remove. Isn't that interesting? This word, Azazel, translated scapegoat, is a word that carries the connotation to entirely remove, to remove from, to take away. Well, we might not know what the origin and the true meaning of this word is, but we know what is represented here. We know exactly what's being done here. I mean, the Bible is clear. The instruction is clear. Take this goat. So they cast lots. They literally had pulled pulled lots out of a bucket 
And one said for the Lord and one said for Azazel or for removal. And the goat that drew the lot for the Lord was the goat that was sacrificed. And a scarlet thread was hung around, was tied around his neck to indicate this is the goat that's going to be sacrificed. The one for Azazel or the one for removal had a scarlet thread or a scarlet ribbon tied around its horn. And it was reserved to the end of the ceremony after all the blood was put Behind the veil on the altar after the blood was sprinkled, then the high priest comes back and he takes this goat and he lays his hands on it and a fit man, that's the way the Bible describes it, a fit man takes that goat having all of the sins of the people put upon that goat. A fit man leads that goat out into the wilderness to never be seen again. What a strange ceremony. But what a fitting ceremony. The two goats, this one offering, represented the atonement. And this is what it says. The one goat is sacrificed for the atoning of sin. The other goat has hands laid on it, the Bible says, for the atoning of sins. This one sacrifice... Of the, this one offering of two goats is for the atoning of sin. There is bloodshed to atone for sin. There is the impartation of sin and the sin taken away, and it is called for the atoning of sin. The scapegoat was the symbolic remover of sin for the people of God. This is symbolic of what God does with our sin in Christ. Jesus is our scapegoat who takes away our sin. Jesus, do you hear me, church? Jesus takes away our sin. Jesus doesn't cover up our sin so that it's uncovered later. Jesus takes away our sin so that it is seen and known no more. This goat, When the priest laid his hands on that goat and imparted the sins of the people to that goat and that fit man led that goat into the wilderness miles away, that goat was never seen again. Later on, according to Jewish tradition, though the Bible doesn't say this, but later on in Jewish tradition, however they came to begin to do this, the tradition was they would take that goat so many miles away to a certain place and that fit man would push that goat off the edge of a cliff and and it would die. But that's not what the Bible says to do. That's Jewish, that's the legend. But that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that that sins of the people, that the sins of the people were put upon this living animal and that living animal carried away their sins. Sounds to me like a living Savior. Sounds to me like Jesus who died. Yes, he died. But yet he is not dead. He is alive. And in his life eternal, he forever makes intercession for us. In his life eternal, he is the eternal atonement for our sins. This is why your sin can be taken away and it is never to be known again. This is why God takes away your sin and God does not see your sin anymore. 
You see it. You remember it. You recall it. But God does not. This is what John the Baptist declared when he saw Jesus. I'm going to read the scripture again. John 1.29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And kids, what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is God's mercy toward those who fear him. He has removed our sin from us. Listen to what Psalm 103, verses 1 through 12, uh, 11 through 12 say. Psalm 103, verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. In my geography class, I asked my geography student if he knew where the East Pole was. Do you know where the East Pole is? Anybody been to the East Pole? Do you know where the North Pole is? Where? It's at the North Pole. Now, I've never been to the North Pole. You know where the South Pole is? It's at the South Pole. How about the West Pole? Is there a West Pole? No. So did you know that if we began right now a journey traveling north and we walked to the North Pole, that'd be a long walk, wouldn't it? Once we hit the North Pole and pass that point, you know what direction we'd be headed? South. And we could walk to the North Pole, then back down, if we could, and, and walk all the way to the South Pole. And then once we passed the South Pole and started heading north, we'd be going north again, right? But do you know that if we started walking east or west, we could walk for eternity, and we would never hit a point where east begins to become west or we could walk west and we would never hit a point where west becomes east god did not just by 50 50 chance say that he has cast his, this, our sins as far away from him as the east is from the west if he would have said from the north from the south that wouldn't have been good news would it because that means there's a finite distance between god and my sin But God says, listen, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That means when God takes away our sin, we'll never meet it again. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgression from us. Well, listen to Micah chapter 7 verse 19. If that's not good enough for you. And he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now, I used to live on the coast, and I'd go to the coast all the time. And I've lost things, not in the depths of the sea. I mean, I've just lost things in the, in the bay that's just three or four feet deep. And when I drop it, my pocket knife is gone. Hunt. Try to find it, can't find it, it's gone. I don't know, I know it's down there somewhere, but I can't find it. I can't imagine that whatever we, whatever is cast into the depths of the sea, do you think you can go back there and get it? No, you can't. But what do we try to do? We try to dig it up, we try to pull it back. We need to leave our sin, 
our past sin, our present sin, and even our future sin where God has placed it far removed from us. Jesus has taken away our sin. He has removed it as far as the east is from the west. He has cast it into the depths of the sea. We cannot use the grace of God as an excuse to continue in sin. And the grace of God must be our motivation and our means by which we grow out of our sin and away from our sin. And by the grace of God, we should not be trying to dig up and pull back our sin from the place that God has cast it far away from us. If God has forgotten our sin, why do we remember it? If God has forgiven our sins, what right do we have to not forgive ourselves for our sins? We don't have any right. And when we will not accept God's forgiveness for our sins, we are actually in rebellion against God. Because if God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ, we have no right to hold on to the sin that God has cast as far as the east is from the west. We have no right to keep pulling up the sin that God has cast into the depths of the sea. We can't do it. It's only in our mind It's only in ourselves. It's really not even real. We can't bring that sin back. We only live in that sin in our mind. And this is why the Bible says we need to renew our mind through the Word of God. We need to be transformed by the Word of God. Romans 12.1, Paul writes these words, Brothers, I beg you by the mercies of God to present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. No longer being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? I believe it's Christ in us, the hope hope of glory. Ultimately, this is what Jesus came to do to redeem us so that we would be his people, that we would be his instruments of glory, his witnesses of glory in this earth, his trophies of grace. He lives in us if he has redeemed us. And our lives should prove that reality of Christ in us. And if Christ is in us, that means that God has forgiven our sin and he has removed it far from us. Stop living in your sin and start living in his redemption. Live in his freedom. God chose us before the foundation of the world. This is what Ephesians 1 says. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The grace of God in Jesus Christ has taken away our sin. He has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. He has cast it into the depths of the sea. And if God has done that by his grace, why would we go to all the trouble to try to pull up our sin? Instead of rejoicing in the freedom that he has given to us, rejoicing in the grace that gives us the power and the ability now not to continue to live in sin, but to live free from sin. 
See, grace doesn't give us the permission to keep sinning. Grace gives us the power to walk free from our sin. And if we understand the grace of God, we're not going to want to keep sinning. We're going to want to live lives that reflect the very life and nature of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. And in our human imperfection, when we fall down, guess what? We have an advocate with the Father. And when we confess our sin to Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Leave your sin in the unplumbed depths and keep moving forward in the God's grace and in God's renewal. We have been set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And if the Son has set you free, the Bible says you are free indeed. Walk in your freedom. Walk in the grace of Jesus Christ and thank Him that He has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. Amen. Let's prepare ourselves to come to the table. Now, you don't have to be a member of Christ Fellowship Church, but a member of His body. We believe in the universal church. This is why we confess the creed. We're not confessing, we believe in the denomination of Roman Catholicism. We believe in the Catholic. We believe in the universal church, the universal body of Christ. And if you're part of that body, you're welcome to the table of the Lord. We'll take the bread and we'll take the cup and we'll take it all together. So, as you trust Jesus, come to this table. If you've never trusted Jesus, trust Him and come to Jesus. Here's your charge today. If you belong to Jesus, you have been set free from sin and death. If you have been set free in the Son of God, you are free indeed, and that means you are free from your sin, all of it, past, present, and future. You are not free to continue living in sin. You are free to continue living now apart from your sin. Now in Christ, you no longer have to live in sin. You do not have to live in the memory of your sin or in the experience of your sin because Jesus has set you free. When we do sin and as we confess our sin to him, The scripture promises that he is faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aaron could not go into the presence of the Lord any time. Only once a year was he allowed to go behind the veil and not without blood, lest he die. But now in Christ, the veil is removed in the very moment that Jesus said it is finished and he breathed his last. The scripture records for us that in the temple there in Jerusalem, the veil was rent from top to bottom. The veil was removed, opening the way for us to come to God in Christ. Now the way has been opened by the blood of Jesus and we have open access to the Father. We may come boldly any time to the throne of grace. You are free to come to Him, to pray to Him, to worship Him directly. Live in your freedom. Live free from sin. Live free from the condemnation that sin heaps upon us. Live free from your past. Live free in Christ. Now, in the present, live free in Christ into your future. 
I always tell people, you can't change your past, but God can change your future. And if you trust in Jesus, you can have a future very different than your past. And God has made a way for that in his grace, through his love, poured out to us in Jesus Christ. Amen.